Welcome to the Battle Cry Podcast with Convention of States Action President Mark Meckler. You can watch the original live broadcast Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Convention of States Facebook and Rumble channels. Happy Sunday evening, everybody. Mark Meckler here with the Battle Cry. I am, of course, your host for the Battle Cry, and I'm excited to be with you. You know, I know you guys are probably noticing, and I've heard as I'm on the road, some weeks I'm able to be here live, some weeks I'm not. This time of year is a little bit rough. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I travel a lot. I'm going to a lot of state legislatures. I'm doing a lot of testimony. We're doing a lot of rallies out there in the field. And of course, being out there in the field with the grassroots, I mean, that's number one priority for me. Number one priority because the grassroots are the most important thing in convention of states and because the grassroots are what I enjoy. So it's actually kind of selfish for me. I love being out in the field. I hate being away from home. So it's a weird dichotomy. But man, when I get a chance to be out there with you guys, there's just nothing better. It's what gives me hope in the country. It's what lets me know that I am why I believe and what informs my belief that we are actually going to save the nation because I know you. I know how committed you are. I know how dedicated you are. And so that's why this week's call to action is get ready to run. Now, don't panic. I'm not a runner. I don't mean you got to go run a marathon. I don't mean you got to start training and losing weight or any of that stuff we should do anyway. But what I do mean is you need to run for office. And I know you're sitting there going, well, me, oh, that's not for me. I'm not the kind of a person who does that kind of a thing. I, I'm not going to run for office. I'm, I'm not a great public speaker. or I wouldn't even know where to begin. I don't know what to do. But the answer is, yeah, I mean you. And I do mean get ready to run. And I do mean right now. You know, one of the mistakes that people make, and I, when I say people, I mean this very broadly, and especially that we make as, as people who are conservatives, is the idea of when people decide to run. When people should decide to run is well in advance of the upcoming elections. And we're getting tight, in my opinion. The elections, of course, in late 2024. But if you're going to run, and you're going to run successfully, the way you're going to do that is you're going to start to train, just like you would train if you were running a marathon. You're going to start to learn to be a better public speaker. You're going to maybe join Toastmasters or start to write some speeches and Give them to your friends and family, have them critique you so that you get better at public speaking. You're going to do things like you're going to join your local Lions Club or your local Rotary. You're going to get more involved in church or in the PTA because that's how you build out your network. You're going to meet other legislators and, and talk to them and get their advice and their guidance. You're going to talk to people who've been office holders, people who've run for city council, people who are running for school boards. All of those things are part of your training as you get ready to run. And we really do need you. Remember the old saying, Uncle Sam needs you? Well, I'm going to tell you, Mark Meckler needs you. Convention of States needs you. The country needs you. And I don't just mean running for state legislator. I think that's great when people run for state legislator. I think that is a fine place to start if you want to run for your state legislative district. Figure out who serves in your district, uh, whether they're a good legislator, whether you want to run against them, whether they're going to run again, whether it's going to be an open seat. Figure all that stuff out. But there's lots of other ways to run for office. You could decide, and this is particularly important in this time in history, to run for your local school board. Now, I've heard people say, you know, Mark, I, I'm not really up for running for school board because I don't have any kids in the schools. I don't even really know the schools. <coughs> Excuse me. Maybe you're like me and you moved to a school district after your kids were grown. You're Maybe you're a grandparent. You don't have kids in the local schools. You're a citizen, right? You care about kids, right? 
Do you actually want your local school district having pornography in the library, teaching kids this DEI garbage where they teach kids that if they're white, they're racist, if they're black or Hispanic or Asian, maybe they're victims. Is that what you want your kids teaching or your kids in your school district being taught, even if you don't know them? Do you want kids being able to hide from their parents when the school is transitioning them? When the school is maybe giving them drugs, when the school is encouraging them to quote unquote identify as the opposite gender, that stuff's hideous stuff. It's evil stuff. And we should stand against it whether or not we have kids in the school district. It's not about whether they're our kids. It's about protecting the least among us, people who cannot protect themselves. So sometimes the best people to run for school board are maybe retired folks, right? They don't have kids in the school district. They don't have... Uh, grandkids in the school district, but they understand that if they don't step into the fight, if they don't go fight for those kids, then nobody else is going to. So who should run right now? You should run right now. I want to tell you a story about somebody who did exactly what we're talking about. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you she's become one of my heroes. Over a year ago, uh, we were in the uh, Wyoming legislature. And in that legislature, we were up for a vote and we got smoked. And that happens, by the way. We lose more than we win. This is a long game. And so we know sometimes we're going to lose. Doesn't make it any less frustrating. And if you're there as a grassroots activist and you've worked and you've talked with your legislator, <clears throat> you've been in the Capitol, you've been lobbying, and then you get your butt kicked, it could be really frustrating. It could be really dejecting. You can get depressed. You can maybe even decide to quit. So a, over a year ago in the Wyoming legislature, Rick Santorum was there on the day of the vote. And we got smoked, as I said, and he was frustrated and disappointed. And there was a grassroots activist that turned to him after that vote and said, what do we do now? And that grassroots activist was a young mom by the name of Evie Brennan. She has three young kids and she'd never been involved in politics. And Senator Santorum turned to her and said, now, you run for office. <clears throat> and she said, I don't have any idea how to run for office. I'm not a politician. I never wanted to run for office. And he said, you're perfect. You need to run for office. And Evie prayed about it. And she talked to her family about it. Uh, and I have had a chance to meet with Evie since then. Evie, by the way, is now Senator Evie Braun of Wyoming. <clears throat> She's just finished serving, I believe, her first term in the Wyoming Senate. Really exciting. She's a big COS advocate, obviously. But she went to her family and her family told her she was crazy. <laughs> I had a chance to meet her mom and her kids. Mom has stepped into the fight by taking over for a lot of the things that Evie would have done during session, really taking care of the three kids and, and helping to be in charge of that. Evie had to spend a lot of time away from her family. I asked her mom, what did you think when Evie told you she was going to run for the Senate or thinking of running for the Senate? And her mom said, I told her no and that she's crazy. And uh, Evie decided to do it anyway. Uh, she, she's a prayerful woman. She prayed about it, talked with her family about it, decided it was something she wanted to do. She is now, I, I would say, kind of the hottest upcoming rising young senator in Wyoming right now. And I met her a couple of times during the legislature, met the kids, had a chance to meet her mom, hung out with Evie, watched her working with other senators. She is an impressive and powerful young political force in the state of Wyoming. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, if you think maybe you can't do it, if you think maybe it would be overwhelming for you, 
Uh, maybe you have kids. Maybe you feel like you're too old, too young, whatever. I want you to look at the example of Evie Brennan in Wyoming, Senator Evie, uh, Evie Brennan, who is one of my heroes now in the United States of America, a rising superstar, and think, if Evie can do it, I can do it. No background in politics, trained as a nurse, worked as a nurse, mom of three, stay-at-home mom, really an impressive young woman. If Evie can do it, I promise you, you can do it. You're just as impressive as she is, and you can pull it off too. So be like Evie. Be a hero who steps up and gets into the fight and do it now. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in COS around the country because oh, there's a lot going on. It's hard to keep track of how much is going on. First, let's talk about Kansas. We had a historic vote in Kansas last week. I'm really excited to report. This is the first time, I believe, in Convention of States history that we had a floor vote on the same day uh, in both houses, in the Senate and in the House of Representatives. And we got a majority of the votes in both houses in Kansas. So <clears throat> I got to say, oh, excuse me, guys. <clears throat> I got to say kudos to the Kansas grassroots. What a team. I was out there last week. I got to see a bunch of the stuff that was going on. I got to meet with leadership. That place is rocking with grassroots activity. Kudos to their regional director, Dave Schneider, who lives in Kansas about an hour from the Capitol, lives in Manhattan, Kansas. He's been working that hard for years. But really kudos to the leadership of the grassroots there, to the leadership in the legislature to pull off a majority vote in both houses of the Kansas legislature in a single day. That is a tremendous victory. Now, there's a caveat to this. In the Kansas Constitution is a clause that is called the Roe Clause. And it's called the Roe Clause. We refer to it the Roe Clause because in 1974, Kansas amended their constitution and they did so to require, a, at least part of this amendment package was to require a two-thirds vote of the legislature instead of a simple majority vote of the legislature in order to pass an Article 5 application. 1974 is the year after 1973 of Roe versus Wade. Really interesting because we did all the research. You look at the debates around the amendment package for the Constitution. There was no debate about this. There was no discussion about this. There were no media articles on the Roe portion. And what it was intended to do was to protect Roe versus Wade that had been enacted in 1973. And you think of Kansas, pretty conservative red state. Somebody manages to insert a pro-choice the, what I would call the row baby killing two thirds requirement. Now, that requirement, in my opinion, is not constitutional. We've talked to a lot of constitutional scholars because of the supremacy clause of the United States Constitution. A state can't affect the operation of the U.S. Constitution and put extra requirements on. So I think that's unconstitutional. We're looking into the appropriate remedy for that now, and we'll have more news on that in the near future. But congratulations to Kansas. You guys rock it. Both houses, same day, majority vote, passing the Convention of States resolution. Uh, now we just have to figure out what to do about this unconstitu unconstitutional two-thirds requirement. All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, what's going on in North Carolina. North Carolina, we have passed the House of Representatives. Really strong vote there. Leadership in support. Uh, our sponsor, Dennis Riddell, one of the best sponsors in the country, I would argue, provided great leadership. We got it done in the House. John Bell, majority leader there in the House, big supporter, did a great job. We are now in the Senate. And in the Senate, we're working, we believe we're very close to having the proper whip count to get it done. The problem that we have in the North Carolina Senate, and this is a problem we've had for the last few years, is people tell us 
that they want to vote for by people. I mean, senators, they say, yeah, I will vote for that. And then they go into caucus and they tell the leadership, uh, yes, leadership, I will vote for it if it gets on the floor, but I'd rather it not make it to the floor. Leadership comes back to us and says, look, I know you think you have the whip count, but you really don't because you got a bunch of people who don't want it to go to the floor. So we're not going to bring it to the floor. So we're working on that right now. We're identifying the senators who tell us one thing out front and say another thing behind the scenes. And we're working to put pressure on them so that we can get it done in North Carolina. And I do believe we're going to get it done in North Carolina this year. All right, uh, let's talk about next uh, Iowa. Iowa is really exciting. We're moving in both chambers. We've made it through the committees in both chambers, subcommittee and committee in both chambers. And now we're moving on to the floor. And I think the floor vote will be first uh, probably in the Senate and, uh, and then move over to the House. But we have support from leadership in both houses. I think the whip count is looking pretty good there. But we do have one problem there. And I don't normally bring up our opposition by name. And I don't do that because I don't want to elevate them. And they're usually, I mean, oftentimes I got to say those who are public opponents of ours are usually not being honest. They're not telling the truth. They won't do their homework. They won't listen to the scholars on the subject, but it's gotten pretty bad in Iowa. And so I am going to call it out by name. In Iowa, there is a national RNC committee woman by the name of Tamara Scott, and she has just gone off the rails. Now, I got to say, generally speaking, I would argue that Tamara Scott has been a good conservative force in Iowa and in politics generally. I don't have anything bad to say about her generally. I, I'm not going to attack her personally. I'm just going to deal with the things that she's actually doing and saying. She has a show and she's been talking on that show uh, in an incredibly negative fashion about Senator Rick Santorum and Mike Ferris. She texts me regularly too, but whatever, I, I can deal with it. I, I don't feel a need to respond to those, but I do need to respond to the things that she's been saying about Rick Santorum and about Mike Ferris. About Rick Santorum, she has specifically alleged that she spoke with him in the Iowa Capitol and that she expressed her disappointment that Santorum was working with Convention of States. And she claims that Rick Santorum said, well, everybody has to earn a paycheck somehow. Really? Really? Do you really believe Senator Rick Santorum would say that? She goes on to say it's a good thing that Planned Parenthood wasn't in the Capitol talking to Rick Santorum, implying that Rick Santorum has sold out his principles and he would work for, for Planned Parenthood. And I got to say, this is one of the most outrageous, offensive, disgusting, scurrilous things that I've ever heard anybody say about a man like Rick Santorum, who has been as true blue conservative for his entire political career as anybody out there. Rick Santorum, who has been the premier fighter for the right to life, the fighter for the unborn in the United States House of Representatives, in the United States Senate, and out on the campaign trail as a presidential candidate for twice of anybody. Rick Santorum, whose beautiful daughter, Bella, there were people who alleged he should have aborted her. They should have aborted her because she has a she had severe uh, birth defects and she is severely disabled. She's a wonderful kid who has grown up and is living a beautiful life and is bringing joy to the Santorum family and everybody that she meets. People said he should have aborted her. Of course, he wouldn't do that. He is a pro-life advocate, and you have this, I, I'm just going to say, completely off the rails, unhinged committee woman right now. And when I say she's off the rails and unhinged, I want to be really clear. I'm only responding to the things that she's saying about Rick Santorum here. 
I'm not saying she's not a conservative. She's been a longtime conservative. I'm not saying she hasn't been right in the fight on many things. She's been right in the fight on many things in America. I'm going to deal with what's being said and what's being done right now. So she's claiming that Rick Santorum would sell out the right to life to Planned Parenthood for a paycheck, that he said that about convention states. That's just a lie. It's just absolutely untrue, and it's outrageous that she would say such a thing. She is also attacking Mike Ferris. Mike Ferris, important to remember, Mike Ferris, basically the founder of the homeschool movement in America, uh, certainly one of its premier advocates in the early days, the founder of homeschool legal defense, founder of Patrick Henry College, a conservative Christian college in Percival, Virginia, one of the founders of Convention of States, a fighter for the right to life in America for a long time, a fighter for parental rights in America for the long for the longest time, went to years ago, led their CEO, helped lead them to 13 Supreme Courts in 12 of those. Mike Ferris, who under his leadership, the ADF essentially served as co-counsel in the Dobbs case, helped to overturn Roe versus Wade. Tamara Scott is attacking Mike Ferris as some kind of global conspirator who wants to overturn, destroy, and replace the United States Constitution. I mean, this is just outrageous, hideous, crazy, slanderous stuff. Again, I'm going to say it again very clearly. I want to be very clear about what I'm doing here. I don't just attack people randomly. I don't attack people on a slanderous character basis, but I will address the things that they are actually doing and saying. And in this case, in Iowa, you have a Republican committee woman who is slandering Rick Santorum, who's lying about Rick Santor Santorum in the most scurrilous, unchristian manner, who's lying about Mike Ferris in the most scurrilous, unchristian manner. And I'm just not going to let that go untouched. Uh, you know, I, to give you an idea of the kind of people that she's relying on, she's going to slander and attack Rick Santorum. She's going to slander and attack Mike Ferris. She's going to slander and attack me. And on her program, she has a quote-unquote expert from the John Birch Society named Robert Owens, who was suspended by the Ohio Supreme Court from being a practicing attorney for stealing money from his clients, who is currently under a six-count criminal felony indictment for stealing money from his clients. That's the legal expert that she's going to rely upon to attack Mike Ferris, to attack Rick Santorum, to attack me. These are the kinds of people that she hangs out with and relies on. So again, I'm gonna close with this. I am not attacking Tamara Scott generally as a conservative. I'm not slandering Tamara Scott or impugning her character broadly. I think she's done a lot of great conservative stuff for Iowa and probably as a national committee woman. But what I am going to call out is this kind of disgusting, vile slander that she's issuing against Mike Ferris and Rick Santorum. And I am going to point out that she is actually elevating somebody who is currently under criminal indictment for stealing money from his clients, somebody who has been uh, essentially disbarred or prevented from practicing law by the Ohio Supreme Court. Not the first time he's been under sanction by the Ohio Supreme Court. That's who she's relying on while slandering Rick Santorum and Mike Ferris. And we're going to say, we're just not going to tolerate it. We're going to call it out. We're going to go after it hard when we see it. We're not picking these fights, by the way. 
we're responding to the slander of somebody else. So when people say, why can't we all just get along? I agree with that. Why can't we just all get along? Why would somebody who's an alleged conservative like Tamara Scott, a Republican committee woman, be attacking two conservative heroes, longtime, lifetime conservative heroes, warriors, fighters in the right for life, fighter for homeschool, fighter for parents' rights. Why would somebody like that be attacking Senator Rick Santorum and Mike Ferris? It, it doesn't make any sense to me that Tamara Scott would be doing this. We're always going to call that out. We're willing to respond. We're going to step into the fight when we're slandered, when our friends are slandered and attacked like that. We're not going to go on the attack first, but we absolutely are not going to sit here and take it when somebody is doing it to great warriors for all the great conservative causes that there are out there. Okay, enough about Tamara Scott. What we're going to do in Iowa to push back against that is we're just going to win. You guys are out there. Grassroots activists are out there. You know the truth. You're going to fight for the truth. You're going to push back against the slander. And we are going to be victorious in Iowa this year. Mark Meckler is fighting every day to help call the first ever Article 5 Convention of States. Go to conventionofstates.com pod to become part of the solution as big as the problem. There's one kind of broad news story that I want to do today, and it's broad. And it's not a single story. It involves a lot of different stuff. And what I want to talk about is government hypocrisy. And specifically, I want to talk about, start with federal government hypocrisy and the double standards. You've heard the old adage, if it weren't for double standards, they wouldn't have any standards at all. That's actually the truth right now at the level of the federal government. It's really outrageous what they're doing, right? So they talk about fascism and then they impose fascism. They're trying to silence people like you and people like me, uh, people like James O'Keefe, anybody that they can silence that is conservative, parents going to school board meetings, they're trying to silence them using fascist techniques. In other words, what they're doing now is they're combining with big business, they're combining with the intel agencies. I mean, could you imagine if you're as old as me, I'm 61 years old, if you're 60 or older, do you remember the American left and they were against the CIA, against the FBI, against the man, against big corporations. Yeah. Well, now they are pro-Google censoring you, pro-Facebook censoring you, pro-Instagram censoring you. They are pro all of those intel agencies spying on you. They are pro all of those intel agencies cooperating with all these big corporations. And by the way, one of the definitions and one of the, the things that you see consistently under fascism is big business and big government operating like that, right? They're hand in hand, hand in glove, operating to suppress dissent. Fascism, the very definition of fascism is everything inside the state, nothing outside of the state, and nothing against the state. And this is now what the left is doing in the United States of America. And by the way, by the left, I wanna go beyond government. I'm saying government does it, but I'm also talking about a lot of leftists in America, what now call themselves progressives. There's a schism taking place on the left, though, that you see between the progressives, who I would argue are now the majority of the left, who believe that they don't believe in free speech. They believe that we should be censored. They believe that we should have to be shut down, shut up, and moved out of the public square. And there's a schism between them and what I would call old school liberals who don't believe in that. Uh, professors like Alan Dershowitz and Jonathan Turley. I don't always agree with those guys, but they agree we should have a dialogue. Uh, former leftists like Naomi Wolf, who basically learned that if you speak out against the regime, you're going to get censored. 
Uh, people like Piers Morgan, if you express any heterodox opinions, you're going to be censored. People like Dave Rubin, uh, people like Joe Rogan. I mean, there are a lot of them out there nowadays. People like Tulsi Gabbard, who would say, look, you know, I'm, I'm maybe more liberal. They're actually all moving away from progressivism maybe towards classical liberalism, but a lot of them are even moving towards conservatives. And the reason they are is because you and I don't call for censorship. We just think in the public square, people should be able to express their opinions generally, right? I may not like the opinion. In fact, I may loathe the opinion. I may even hate the opinion. I may think the opinion is damaging or dangerous, but my position, your position, our position broadly as conservatives is we're going to meet those things with free speech, right? You take bad ideas and you challenge them with good ideas. Notice I say bad ideas on the left and good ideas on my right. That's the way it works is you take speech and bad speech and you meet it with more speech and better speech. You take bad ideas and you meet them with good ideas and you keep government out of that business and you let people work these things out on their own by debating these things. That used to be a fundamental underlying assumption of our republic, that there would be a lot of disagreement, that New York would be different than California, that I might be different than you, that you might be different than your neighbor, but that we understand we're all gonna argue this out in the public square, <clears throat> and then the best man or woman or set of ideas would win in the public square. And now we have government weighing in and telling us that free speech is dangerous, right? That free speech, speech is violence and speech can do damage, but only when it's your speech, right? And they will tell you, and here's more government hypocrisy, that they should be free to speak to your children <laughs> however they want. Children who are under the age of consent to sex should be talked to about a bunch of bizarre sexual notions and indoctrinated on those things. And you should not be able to have anything to say about it because shut the heck up. Right? Because we don't believe in free speech for you, only for us, only for people who believe in the radical gender ideology, only people who believe in what they call DEI, right? Which is crazy stuff. DEI really means they're going to teach your kids to be racist, to judge people on the color of their skin. They're going to teach your kids that if they're white, then they are um, oppressors, if they're black or Hispanic or other races, that they are victims. They're going to divide us by race. And you should shut the heck up about it, but you should let them talk about it all they want. That is the hypocrisy of our government. We have a government that's so hypocritical that they're willing to spend $40 billion plus defending the borders of Ukraine, and they don't want to spend any money or very little money defending the borders of, for example, Texas, my great state, right? They're willing to literally have tens of thousands, 70,000 people plus a year die of fentanyl poisoning. They're willing to have tens of thousands of young women, young boys sold into sexual slavery. They're willing to send all that money to Ukraine. They're not willing to spend that money to stop those things. Not willing to secure our own border to stop what is now a humanitarian crisis and a national security crisis, but they're willing to spend billions and billions of dollars overseas. Now, I want to clarify I think there is some role for the U.S. to play in Ukraine. I wish I knew what the end game is. I, I don't like it when the president says we're in this as long as, as it takes. I don't like it that there's no standards over there. I don't like it that we're not forcing an end game. I do see that we have a role to play over there, but we have a role to play on our southern border, right? And it seems to me that we have a federal government that cares about one, that doesn't care about the other, and that's hypocritical.
And the federal government at this point is nothing but hypocrisy on hypocrisy. I just saw this week a congressman ask somebody from the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Agency, the ATF, what the penalty was for putting false statements on your background check when you want to go buy a handgun. And the answer is the penalty is now 15 years. And the congressman asked the guy from the ATF, well, Hunter Biden said in his book that he was a drug abuser. He didn't put that. It asked that question specifically on your application. He didn't put that. How come he's not in jail? The reason is hypocrisy, right? Because we have a two-tiered justice system. I just saw today that over they spent over 16 congressmen, over 16,000 hours more investigating January 6th than they did investigating the BLM riots of 2020. Hypocrisy, because everything the government now does is hypocrisy, right? And this is just the way it works. We have in New York, a district attorney who is looking at harassing, who is harassing and prosecuting Donald Trump, former president of the United States over some misdemeanor violation. This is a district attorney who, by the way, has made 52% of all their felonies in New York and Manhattan into misdemeanors. And yet he's prosecuting a potential misdemeanor. I don't even see a crime here, but prosecuting a potential misdemeanor against a former president because the left and their hold on government is nothing but hypocrisy. And I think this is really important that you pay attention to this. A country with a two-tiered system of justice is a country without a system of justice. Right? When we talk about our justice system, I think it's more appropriate now to call it our injustice system. It's not a justice system any longer. There was a time when as a conservative, somebody would get prosecuted and I would just think, oh, wow, I mean, it seems like maybe they did something bad. Now I just think, especially if they're a conservative being prosecuted on something that looks like it could be political, my first thought is, oh, this is a political persecution because we have a country in which we have an injustice system and not a justice system. So you and I are gonna have to fix that. They're never gonna fix it themselves. They like it, especially the progressive left likes the injustice system. They are willing to abuse the system if it suits their ends. I really haven't seen this from the right. I'm worried that at some point we will. People are only going to be abused for so long before they start abusing back. But we don't normally see these kinds of abusive prosecutions, abusive use of law enforcement, abusive use of state power, abusive use of censorship from the American right. We see this coming from the American left. The American left calls the American right fascists. If you want to know what they are, just listen to what they call us, right? They call us terroristic. Just look what the BLM did. Look at the riots in the streets. That was essentially domestic terrorism. It's not the right doing domestic terrorism. It's the left in America that are the domestic terrorists. So watch out for the hypocrisy. And then when you ask, what are we going to do about it? You got to look in the mirror, look at yourself and say, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to run. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to give money. Like speaking of getting involved and running and all that stuff and giving money, Convention of States could always use your support. Sign up, go to conventionofstates.com, click the Take Action tab after you sign the petition, and be a volunteer. And we have new volunteers coming in all the time. We have great training program. You're going to be involved in everything from election training, election integrity, Second Amendment, uh, pro-life causes, whatever it is you're passionate about, we'll help you get trained up to be an effective advocate for that. And of course, for calling a convention of states. Click the donate button. Look, if we have millions of people who support us, if everybody would give five bucks a month, we'd never have to ask for money ever again. Literally over 5 million in support of us. If you click 
the donate button on there and you commit to giving $5 a month, that's only 60 bucks a year. If all 5 million plus supporters of Convention of States did that, we'd never need to ask for money ever again. So we could use your help financially. I wanna finish up here by doing my favorite part, which is always going to questions because you guys are why Convention of States exists. I get to come in here on the battle cry, I get to talk at you. Talking with you is what we really love. So let's go to the Q&A and let's start with Dale Wilcox. Dale asks, how much latitude will there be in suggested amendments with regard to the three goals of COS? Could we repeal the 17th Amendment? I want to just clarify the question, Dale, by telling you that the Convention of States resolution is what's called a subject matter resolution. And what that means is we're not proposing specific amendments. We're proposing that there be a debate at convention around three different subject matters. First is anything that would impose term limits on the federal government. It's on federal officials and Congress. By federal officials, what that means is you can impose term limits on bureaucrats, staffers, judges, and Congress, right? So we wanted to make clear, it's not just Congress. If you impose term limits on Congress and not those other people, you got a dangerous situation on your hands. We'll just make all those other people more powerful than Congress. That would be bad. Second is anything that would impose fiscal restraints on the federal government can be discussed at convention. Fiscal restraints meaning things like a balanced budget amendment, things like tax caps and spending caps, things like imposing generally accepted accounting principles on the federal government. Look, I'm a fan of a balanced budget amendment, but without those other things, they could just tax us to death, put fees on us to death, force unfunded mandates on the states, make us pay for all the same stuff and more but they do it through a balanced budget amendment. That would be bad. So if we're gonna get a balanced budget amendment, we need all this other stuff. And then finally, I think the one that Dale's asking about specifically is we're gonna limit the scope, power, and jurisdiction of the federal government. What does that mean? It means we can tell them, no, you can't be involved in education. No, you can't be involved in energy. No, you can't be involved in healthcare. No, you can't be involved in the environment. These are things that the federal government was never intended to be involved in. States all have departments that handle those things. We need to get the federal government out of those things. Specifically in regard to the repeal of the 17th Amendment, the 17th Amendment is the amendment whereby we said, instead of having the states appoint their United States senators, which is how senators used to get to Washington, D.C., the state legislatures used to appoint them, we were going to have them directly elected by the people of the states. This was a terrible mistake, to be honest with you. What it did is it centralized power in Washington, D.C. Senators were supposed to represent the interests of the state itself as an entity. And mostly what they were supposed to do is they were supposed to go to Congress, to Washington, D.C., and say no. When, when the president or when the House of Representatives said, hey, we're going to impose an unfunded, unfunded mandate on the states, they were supposed to say no to that unfunded mandate. When they were going to say, we're going to take power away from the states, the senators were there responsive to their state legislature say, no, you can't take power away from the states. And in 1913, when we gave that power to the people to elect them, we took it away from the state legislatures. We changed the balance of power and we changed it in favor of DC. Now, honestly, it was good intentions. And the good intention was the way that people got elected as senators, they were rich, powerful, and connected. And so today, the good news is that Senators, people who run for senator are usually rich, powerful, and wait, it's the same thing, right? So it didn't fix the problem and it weakened the states and that was a problem. So yes, technically speaking, that would limit the scope, power, and jurisdiction of the federal government <coughs> by returning that power to the states. So I think that would be healthy and I think we could do that. Uh, last question is, uh, can we make, this is from Sue, can we make Congress accountable for their spending? And the answer is we absolutely can. We can impose a balanced budget amendment. We can put tax caps in place. 
and put spending caps in place. We'd actually impose penalties on Congress for not meeting the balanced budget, for not meeting tax caps and spending. So Sue, this is the only way that I know that we can and we are going to hold Congress accountable for their spending. So that's it for the questions today. Uh, we appreciate the questions. Keep sending those in. Uh, we're going to keep doing the questions every single week. I'll try to be here every week that I possibly can because I love being with you guys on the Battle Cry on Sunday nights. God bless you guys. Get out there. Don't forget, go to conventionofstates.com, uh, sign the petition, sign up, take action, get ready to run. This has been the podcast version of the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. Visit conventionofstates.com slash pod to learn more. Thank you for listening.